The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Good day to you and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is your host, John Whitbeck. We are very blessed today to have Bruce Cruiser, the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Virginia, joining us today. Bruce, thank you for being here. It's an honor to have you. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity. So first of all, what I'd like to do is just get your background. Uh, I, I got to confess, I am very jealous of your job. I would love to be full-time working in mental health policy and uh, lobbying the state legislature for the priorities that I sort of, I'm passionate about in mental health. And, you know, I want to go over some of those priorities you have with Mental Health America of Virginia. But first of all, tell me about you, how you got into the role you're playing now with this incredible organization and how you came up. Yeah, well, thanks. First of all, I was always interested in social change and policy. And with my graduate degree in social work, I concentrated on the criminal justice system policy uh, and advocacy and worked for some years with a nonprofit dealing with the, the impact of incarceration on families and children. And then I went to work with the community corrections program uh, in Henrico County. I was director of their community corrections program for over 20 years. And, uh, and what I discovered along the way there was that a great deal of what we were seeing was the impact of trauma and addiction on people who ended up under our supervision for crime. And we, we work closely with the uh, Community Services Board and with other agencies to try to divert people from the system who had mental health concerns or uh, substance abuse issues. And so eventually, I started to work for the state at the Department of Criminal Justice Services uh, as their division director for programs and services. So I was able to be involved in some policy statewide related to all aspects of criminal justice programming and some of it prevention programming. And again, interacting with the mental health system and, uh, and, and homelessness issues and, and all those. And then finally, John, I just said, you know, I'm at the point in my career, I can really get out of the bureaucracy and be an advocate. And so I retired from the state and about five years ago, was very fortunate to get this job with Mental Health America, Virginia. So I'm able to kind of use my background in criminal justice and working with housing issues and other issues to help make those, connect those dots policy-wise, between the criminal justice system and the mental health system. So that's been kind of what has driven me uh, to this work today. And Mental Health America of Virginia has been around since 1937. So we're talking about an organization that has a long history. Is it always been a policy advocate for mental health in the General Assembly in Virginia, or is, it, is its mission morphed over the years? Well, a little of both. I think it's always had an advocacy focus because when it was started in 1937, it was founded by actually a psychiatrist and faith leaders and community leaders concerned about the policy in the state hospitals. And this was during the eugenics movement. And the state, state mental hospitals uh, had policy where they were sterilizing people simply because they were in the state mental hospital. And so the organization started with that as its first issue. 
was to advocate to stop that practice. And through the years, it has morphed a little here and there based on obviously leadership at the time and the context of, of what else was happening in Virginia. But throughout, there's always been an advocacy component and there's always been a public awareness component to try to help break stigma and help people understand that mental health is part of everyone's overall health. And I think the probably the heyday in terms of local affiliates around the state was in the, the, the 60s, the late 50s and 60s, because there was a, there were no other mental health advocacy groups and there were there was not a public mental health system in Virginia. So a lot of what what our agency advocated for then was for the General Assembly to establish a community, a public community mental health system, which today is our community services boards network. And um, really? so that that's always been there. And, but we've had some different focus depending on what the issues were. And then we also have started providing services over the past uh, 20, 25 years, recovery education programming and and some other services, which we can talk about as well. But, you know, the key in all this business is to be nimble and to be able to to pivot. And I guess COVID taught everybody that more than anything. But uh, advocacy right. is always, always a part of it. So you all were part of the genesis of our community services boards in Virginia, which is a, well, I mean, it is the most central, am I right? agency that controls the the access to mental health care in the Commonwealth. Is that fair to say? Well it's the safety net system in our in our, right. our in our state. Right. So I mean if somebody has private insurance with Anthem or some other group, then you know obviously they can access care through their insurance. But for many people who do not have insurance or who have Medicaid, the community services boards, they are the public face for our mental health system. The funding of the has never been sufficient. So it's not Amen. Yeah. So so the community service boards are not the be all end all because they've never been funded or equipped to handle all the mental health needs uh, of our population. One of the things that I really enjoyed reviewing in preparation for today talking with you was your legislative and policy priorities, which I'm looking forward to nerding out with you about mental health policy because I think it's uh, not only a critical that reform come, but also, you know, there's just so many things we can do to improve our mental health system. I, I just think I'm just going to say it. Virginia's mental health system is completely inadequate. It's a crisis. And I've said that from the beginning. And, and in my law practice, you know, we're talking about treating only the people at their most crisis level. And that's just not a way to do business. Uh, there are so many people that need treatment that are not necessarily on the brink of disaster. And I, I feel like all of our legislation over the past 20, 30 years has been reactionary and not proactive. But what I, what I see with your priorities is the opposite. I see sort of an attempt to address a lot of the deficiencies and you sort of kick it off with your priorities, increase access to community-based mental health care, can you explain some of the things that y'all have proposed or are working on that would increase our people in the Commonwealth's access to mental health care? Sure. And I think that really is the priority for many years now because that's where it starts. If you and access is a couple there's a couple couple different pieces to access. I mean, one is when you look at, at Virginia, uh, we rank 41st in the country in terms of access to a trained mental health workforce. Now, if you live in Fairfax, you've got 
probably 10 times as many psychiatrists per, you know, per population as you do in Buchanan County. And, and, and there's just an incredible variation in terms of resources around the state. So the first, when you talk about access, like, is there a clinician? Is there a psychiatrist? Is there some place I can go for support or help in my community? And Virginia has, has ranked really poorly there. And of course, the other part of it is, even if there is a provider or a source of help there, how much does it cost? And, and am I eligible to get the help? And, and both of those things have been really barriers to getting access to care in Virginia. Things are better in terms of the community services boards today than they were 20 years ago. But there's a clear lack of, of understanding, too, about what I qualify for or where can I go. I mean, so there's a public information gap there as well. So all those things contribute. And the other part of it, John, is the whole, when we talk about mental health, just like physical health, it's not just one thing. It's just like, oh, I have a mental health problem. This is where I go. I mean, it depends on so many different factors. A good assessment will indicate exactly what the appropriate care is for someone. So there may be a lot of mental health care in in one community, for example, but not the right kind of care. Maybe there's not the specialty that you need. And so all all of those contribute to this problem. One of the things that you all identify as a problem that I've seen over the years of practice is, is housing and I think oh, you all yeah. use the term housing as healthcare. I couldn't agree more with that. We are so often figuring out a post inpatient treatment program. Many times families just can't either keep the person living with them or don't have the resources to set them up independently, whatever the case may be. What are some of the things that you think Virginia could do to increase stable housing to support uh, mental health care for folks who may not have those resources? We're advocating every year, along with other uh, advocates, for more permanent supportive housing. And that's a model that across the country has proven to have really, really great outcomes. And essentially, that's not just the place to live, but it's the wraparound services, you know, right. particularly for someone coming out of the state hospital. I mean, clinically, there are a lot of people ready for discharge on any given day, up to 200 people are clinically ready for discharge and could free up beds in the state hospital, but there's nowhere for them to go. And, and so permanent supportive housing is, is housing that's designed to have case management and, and, and transportation and support groups and those things which help people be successful in independent living and prevent them from, from falling back into a crisis situation and returning to the hospital. And in Virginia, there's, there's, we're probably, even despite the fact we've gotten some additional investments in the last few years, there's probably at least a need for 5,000 more affordable housing units. And those are, those are huge. And the other, the other piece of it is we're impacted by the whole shortage of affordable housing generally. So that is you have communities like in Richmond where it's more and more expensive to get an apartment and there's a shortage of apartments where people with a third of your income more than a third of your income should not have to go to housing. The Richmond, there's a huge problem with finding housing that people can afford. And this is exacerbated for people who are, who are living with some kind of serious illness, including a mental illness. So it's, both of those are important. Right. No, and, and Loudoun County, where I live in Northern Virginia, it absolutely is the same. 
I like to use the term attainable housing because I think people, when they hear the word affords affordable housing, they sort of think of a, a negative stereotype, if you will. And that's part of the reason, you know, people, you know, not in my backyard sometimes, but I, I absolutely agree with the attainable or affordable housing crisis in Virginia it is an incredible challenge that we face. And it's interesting to hear you say how big an impact that has on mental health, because I had not thought of that and really how, how much that, and that really struck a chord with me when I looked at your priorities. Now, something that's got a lot of attention in past episodes is this need to decriminalize mental illness, which I think you all have said a lot about in your priorities. And I, and I, I one in particular, your priorities have sort of connected with me because of some of the things that past guests have said, or you know, things like mental health dockets, training of law enforcement officers and, and prosecutors for discretion, sentencing, mental health and sentencing, which has been non-existent in the Commonwealth. And, and you know, someone who's, who's I, attorneys in our firm, former prosecutors, former public defenders will tell you that that's a major issue. But one of the things that I liked about your, your focus is the not guilty by reason of insanity plea for defendants is so hard to, to get to. And you all put that in your as in supporting that, can you think of anything that you've seen moving through the legislature or, or things that, that, that would strengthen the ability to use that defense as part of a, a, a criminal prosecution? Yeah, well, not, not directly. We haven't, but, but indirectly we have. And that's, that's such a tough nut to crack, so to speak, because, well, as you know, probably more than, than most, we don't like to think of someone as getting off because right. they, they did something and it's clear they did it. So to say they're not guilty is just hits a lot of people the wrong way. And I think that's part of the barrier there. But indirectly in this last session, we had a lot of success supporting the bills by uh, Senator McClellan and Delegate Bourne to change criminal procedure. And, and again, this is an area because I'm not an attorney. You know more about it than I do, but this will have a big impact because it, for the first time, it will allow defendants to introduce evidence of a serious mental illness before they actually are found guilty. So previously, that has not been allowed to be introduced, uh, and it's also true for other disabilities. Uh, so it is. Um, I think this is a way to help get to some of this, and and you and again, you. I think you're probably familiar with that. The change of procedure is exactly right. I think that's the key to doing this and making it easier for people who are accused of crimes who are not criminals, who instead are mentally ill, to be able to at least use that as a reason. And I actually think that the use of it as a reason to explain behavior at the prosecution stage, not just the sentencing phase, but the guilt phase, is one of the most important reforms we can do to try to decriminalize mental illness. You talked about in your priorities, something I found interesting. I want to hear why, and I'm, and I'm not, this is a politics-free zone. We're a policy-based, but uh, <laughs> you have a, a, the $15 minimum wage as part of your your uh, priorities. Give me a, a good run. That, that is something that, you know, it's, that's a hot topic right now. I think it's, you know, we have a governor's race going on and something's being talked about that we're a right-to-work state versus, you know, collective bargaining. Tell me why the $15 an hour minimum wage is a priority for your organization in, in your policy as it relates to mental health. Well, we were been advocating for that in context of employing certified peer recovery specialists. The, one of the things that we have 
worked on in the last several years is to support the emerging profession of uh, peer recovery support specialism. And these are these are individuals who've had their own lived experience with a with a mental illness or or an addiction, and have gone into recovery and then decided they want to help others. And so they've gone through a 72-hour training provided by the Department of Behavioral Health to become a certified peer recovery specialist. It also requires 500 hours of, of experience under supervision. But the idea is this is an additional member of a mental health team. It's another profession within the mental health workforce. And they are can be invaluable because they've been through it and they can relate to someone by sharing their own experience and say, I know what you're going through. I've been there and be that peer recovery support. But if you if you can't pay them a living a living wage, then you're not going to be able to to work in that field. This is a lot of them are part time and uh, we're trying to get opportunities for for more reimbursement from insurance companies and. Medicaid will now now funds uh, certified peer recovery specialists as part of the uh, mental health workforce. And there's federal legislation been introduced to have Medicare also recognize them as part of clinical support teams. So this is all part of providing somebody a wage so that they can make a living doing what they are best equipped to do. And it will really help you know help bolster the supports available to people as they're going through a crisis or or uh, mental health recovery. And I want to lay the groundwork for that because I, I think what you're, what I'm hearing is an interesting twist on that. And that is staying out of the quagmire that is the $15 an hour minimum wage in general and just really applying it selectively to the mental health context, which I think is a very effective strategy and something that, that probably works better to get, I hate to use the term bipartisan because again, it gets political, but just, you know, sort of that common sense approach to the need for, for this service of a certified peer recovery support specialist. You talked about endorsing effective strategies to prevent suicide as a parent of a teenager. And, and we had an extraordinary young man on our podcast a few episodes ago who was um, went through a really difficult time in, in high school. And, and I have a 16-year-old girl who, you know, la- the last 18 months have been very challenging for every teenager, not just mine. I love the bullet point of increasing mental health education and resources in schools. I think that is just critical. If I had my way, we would fund mental health professionals in every school there for providing services. Do you think it's it's that we need to go that far? Do you think there should be actual trained mental health professionals, not just school counselors, teachers, and, and, and uh, administrators with mental health training, but actual mental health providers in our schools? I do. I do. And I think uh, this is uh, an issue that my, th- my thinking has just changed some over the last few years. I think we have a lot of people who are, say, social workers in schools or, or uh, guidance counselors, um, psychologists, but they all have different roles. And they end up, you'll have a guidance counselor supervising bus duty, the psychologists administer, t- administer tests. So there's they have other duties in the schools. And I think when we're looking at the best way to provide access for kids, for youth, it's to go where they are and and they're in the school. So rather than expect somebody to have their parent haul them after school to an appointment someplace, let's, let's make it access as easy as possible 
and have those mental health resources school-based and probably family connections as well so that there can be resources provided to the family as well as the direct support for the child. So I really do think that that is an issue we're going to see more discussion about in the coming assembly in, the, in, the, in January. I hope so. I hope so. All right. So the, the, the last thing that we saw in your priority was one, obviously, that's important, and that is protecting civil liberties of people with mental illness. Obviously, Virginia, one, one area that Virginia does have an actually robust law on point is, you know, from the ECO stage all the way to commitment, there is, you know, there's a court appointed counsel, which generally are, are, are very competent. Counties like Fairfax County, for example, actually fund both sides, court appointed lawyers and the county attorney's office takes takes on representing the petitioners and commitment hearings. And there there is a there is a, a, a high bar to meet when you're trying to deprive someone of their liberty and put them in inpatient psychiatric treatment. Um, it looks to me though that you all your priorities are really about getting people released as quickly as possible. Am I characterizing that? correctly? Right. Well, that there not be extensions of what's already the law. Right. So, you mentioned that, you know, the special exceptions for ex- for extending the time for emergency custody orders. For those that listening that don't know, emergency custody orders is sort of the first step, independent of the temporary detention order that can be employed to detain somebody for the purpose of having them evaluated to see whether they meet the criteria for initiating commitment. But you all have a, an interesting uh, twist on that, which is maybe extend ECO time up to 24 hours for people that are in detox or have a medical condition or other trauma. Talk to me a little bit about that. I found that uh, an interesting take on, on this because I don't think I've seen organizations advocating for ECO time increases in a while. And, and I thought that was something interesting. Well, yeah. And again, our thinking has evolved around this after listening to a lot of the people in the front lines, the whole idea is we have a lot of people who currently who are shipped off to the state hospital only to, by the time they kind of get settled in there, they're no longer in crisis and they're released. But in the meanwhile, you know, they might have been handcuffed and escorted in a police car, you know, four or five hours or more across the state to find an available bed and then getting sober or calming down and coming out of a crisis and are sent home. When we're talking about a bed crisis and a most efficient use of resources and to impose as little trauma as possible on the individual involved, let's keep it local and figure out if, if the person may be high and so many people come in and they have they have complex situations where there's medical issues or they're they're detoxing and they also have a serious mental illness. It's hard to separate out all those things. But if there could be that appropriate time up to say to 24 hours where they can, can do that, then frequently you won't need to send the person to the state hospital because they've come out of crisis and are getting the treatment that they need there locally without going through all the other trauma. So, right. so that's sort of the idea behind that. And I guess not, not in every situation. And we're seeing, I think, more, more uh, discussion around, of course, earlier on, uh, not even taking the person to the hospital, but having available these 23-hour observation centers, crisis receiving centers, 
And then the, the crisis intervention team assessment centers we have across the state currently, a lot of those are very successful at diverting people from both jail and the hospital because the police can take someone in crisis there. There's often a peer specialist there as, as, as well as clinicians, and they can help the person through the crisis without going beyond that facility, which is obviously the desirable outcome for anybody. Bruce, I saw this morning the governor has proposed over $485 million in new funding for mental health services. Do you think that would have a significant impact on some of the deficiencies that you all are trying to fight? Well, I do. I mean, I haven't seen all the details yet on that, but we certainly think that's a great, is I think the word was used, great down payment, a great start. And because I know, I like big, yeah, I know a big chunk of that funding is designed to alleviate the staffing shortage in the state hospitals. And they're in a situation now where they've closed admissions at several of the hospitals because it's not safe. And, you know, and, it, and we can't, the most essential function for state government, if you're taking custody of someone, whether it be in a, a psychiatric hospital or jail or prison, we have an obligation, first and foremost, that that person is kept safe and that staff are safe. And right now, neither is the case in our state hospitals. And that's why the commissioner issued that, that freeze on admissions. So the immediate impact of these funds can be to bolster staffing, to pay bonuses, to up salaries, to get positions filled so they can open more of those beds. And then we won't have people backed up in emergency rooms in crisis waiting for sometimes days, handcuffed to a bed and an ER because there's nowhere for them to go. So it all interconnects, and I support the governor. Priority one has to be making our hospitals places where it's safe to send someone. Absolutely. Well, Bruce, it's, it's sure been a pleasure talking to you about these issues. Like I said, I could talk about them all day long. It's pretty incredible what you all are doing. Looking ahead to 2022, I'll just close with this. What is going to be some of the things you all are working on in the next session that, that might be interesting? I think continuing this effort to be sure our system is fully funded and fully staffed and that we put as much money into community resources as we do the hospitals, because ultimately that's the way to really change how we do mental health in Virginia. Yeah. Well, on that note, Bruce, thank you so much for your time today, for your, your good description. I hope I can get you to come back after the 2022 session and see what, what you were able to accomplish, because I think that'd be really interesting. Well, thank you, John. I'd be glad to. Uh, I've enjoyed it. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review, and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.